1: Stocks for beginners.
2: That's what the fear is. People feel like they're going to get rolled over by inflation. There's a sense that the real estate market is going to collapse just because it's gone up so much. Like you can't get a car. You can't get to work. I mean, it's just there's a point where there's that fear of we're not going to have the same income or my pension's going to have a
1: problem or something. We're going to get taxed. Hi and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today my guest is one of the many saints of New Jersey, John L. Smallwood. Hello, John. Hello and thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, I should say joisy, Joysy. joy-sy. Oh, no one speaks it. Yeah, the joisy joints, yes. <laughs> John's the president of Smallwood Wealth Management, and they provide investment consulting and financial plan designed for corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and professionals. But we'll find out more about uh, the business at the end of the podcast that we can direct listeners to. And he has his own podcast and is a previous guest of this one. So welcome back and thanks for the return visit. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We're going to be talking about inflation today, and in particular, we're basing this discussion on one of your recent podcast episodes, which is about the infrastructure bill. And we're recording on the 22nd of November, and it's been passed by the House and yet to be passed by the Senate. So what's your views at the moment on this and inflation? Well, the infrastructure bill
2: that has been passed by both the House and the Senate, it's the Build Back Better bill. That has been passed by the House, but now it's on its way to the Senate, and that's the one that's actually going to pay for this thing, okay? And that is where I think we're going to see some dramatic changes in what's going to happen. But this infrastructure bill, it's going through. It's $1.2 trillion. Basically, you have $110 billion allocated to roads and bridges, $39 billion allocated to public transit. $66 $66 billion to the railroads, $73 billion to power grids, $7.5 billion to electric vehicles, and then $7.5 billion to electric buses and ferries, and then airports, another $42 billion, right? It's really interesting to me because when you start to think about this, all of this is going to require a tremendous amount of natural resources, which is good for you guys right? (laughs) But think about it. Like I know over the last few years, there's been so many different conversations about natural resources being hoarded and, you know, certain places buying them up in mass quantity, cornering the markets basically on these things, which if we all rush to improve the airports, well, we need concrete and steel, right? And then roads and bridges, we need concrete and steel, where do we not need concrete and steel, (laughs) right? So what we're looking at is like these commodities are going to go up in price. There's going to be a scarcity of them. And with a scarcity of them, that's going to cause inflation in other areas. Now we're experiencing with the quantitative easing that we've had in the United States, the different aspects of it, it's created a very strange dichotomy between many things have gone up dramatically because people have a lot more discretionary income than they might have had in the last couple of years and they've decided they're going to consume these things then you have you have a lack of product because you don't have the people working so now you have all these things going up and I mean we are experiencing at the time of this recording you know we have our big United States holiday Thanksgiving feast and you have turkeys that are you know, way up in price and you have your potatoes and you have your butter and you have your milk and your cheese and your veggies. I mean, everything's just crazy, expensive, up 15, 20% in some of those areas. And that's really putting a pinch on everybody. Like you think about it, diesel fuel in the United States, in New Jersey, in April, May with $2.75. It's over $4. And you know, gas is the same thing. Gas was like down to like a dollar you know, regular, and now it's 389, right? That hurts everybody. And that's the thing that when you're working and accumulating wealth, most people experience my income creeps up. So I'm making a little bit more money every single year. Maybe I have a banner year and I get a great bonus, or I get a four or five percent raise. And if inflation is two or three percent, you're kind of staying out in front of it. You're really not feeling that impact of you are, but you're not feeling it the same way as somebody who's retired living on a fixed income, whether it be a pension or, you know, we have social security here that's going to get an inflationary rise. It's going to be close to 5%. Nobody was expecting that. But most people are feeling that crunch and that's causing higher withdrawal rates. It's causing higher distribution rates from their investments, principal spend downs. It's been, been interesting.
1: Is that because people understand that their money is losing value by just sitting in the bank? Or are they hoarding? Are they putting the cash under the bed?
2: We have a lot of cash, according to all the figures. You know, In money market accounts and savings accounts, there's tremendously high levels of savings, much more so than we've seen. But there's no return on it. So people are are driving it into the stock market. They're pushing it there. They bought a lot of bonds this year, which is very different than you normally see. And it's kind of flies in the face of conventional wisdom. Well, actually, it doesn't. It, it's directly impacted because what people do is they chase yields. And people were looking at the bond market saying, hey, the bond market last year made eight or 9%. Bonds aren't risky. So money rushed there. Well, at 50 year interest rate lows, bonds are very risky you know, rising interest rates are going to be a problem for these bonds. And people are pushing that money and they're trying to get yield. Then what we're seeing is, you know, you could buy a stock that has a dividend of, you know, one and a half to 2%, or you can buy a bond that has a real true interest rate yield to maturity of about 2%. Over a 10-year period, the stock market should be better. not going to promise that, but it should be. (laughs) So you're seeing... You're seeing people going into, you know, significantly higher risk
1: vehicles because they're chasing yield. And they're forced to, really, aren't they, to get something for their money?
2: They're forced to. And when we're creating a plan for an individual, we're always looking to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% of your annual spending sitting in liquid cash type vehicles, right? So you lose your job, you have an emergency, you have something, but typically... Somewhere in that 40 to 50% is what is normal. And what we're seeing is since the interest rates are so low, people are saying, I can't have the money sitting here. And I'm like, no, this is the point where you don't want to put it at risk. You actually want to hang on to that cash because history basically does repeat itself and you are going to see some pullbacks. And in, those, in that opportunity, it's that cash that creates the opportunity. You know, if I invest all my money and the stock market falls fifty percent, I don't have any cash. I'm like everybody else. I can't take advantage of that. All right. The thing that I'm starting to see people like they're calling for more distributions. The people that are retired, they need more money. They're running up credit card debt. They're doing things because they're starting to feel that pinch, and it's really questioning how can they get. Increased yield, how can they protect against the inflation rate? and I look at it and say inflation's coming from many different areas. you know we have stupid rules being passed around the country where truck drivers there is a push to unionize them right in certain states and stuff like that, and they can't operate their own truck I mean they're just things that don't make any sense in the middle of a crisis. you know to me, unload the trucks, unload the ships, unload the containers, get it back, send it back. Get that stuff to come back. So I'm nervous in this because this $1.2 trillion is not going to take place in an afternoon. By where I live, there are two bridges that are, you know, state-level bridges that are probably 20 years past their useful life. And they're dangerous. They've been talking about rebuilding these bridges for 10 years, 12 years, almost 20 years in one case. They still don't have a start date to get this thing going. So, like, even though we passed this whole bill, when's it really going to start? You know, investing in technology, investing in research, a lot of this money is going to go to research. That's going to take time. But you think about every place that you have to upgrade a railroad, every place you're going to upgrade a station or a, an airport or something to that nature, the amount of infrastructure costs that have to go in. So, you start to think about it. You know, the engineering firms are going to do really well. And there's been a massive amount of consolidation in the engineering, you know, small little 20-man, 100-man engineering firms being gobbled up by the big firms. It's an interesting environment. And if you have government subsidies to do this, there's going to be a lot of money going in that direction. The technology, I mean, think about investing $73 billion in power grids and then electric vehicles, and all these other places, that's great for broadband. That's great for, you know, everything that we're doing. But it's ramping up the energy. I mean, like, wow, like, where's the energy really going to go? Can oil really come back down to free like it was last year? I remember everybody was jockeying, like, can you take it? No, I won't take (laughs) it. No, you take it. (laughs) It was negative at one point, wasn't it? (laughs) Negative, like, I'm going to pay you to take it. Yeah. But where can I store it? Mm. The thing that is really bothersome to me is... For the average investor, will they have enough money to take advantage of the technology or the infrastructure or, or the commodities or the natural resources? But I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of, you know, the airlines. If we're going to expand the airports, well, we're going to need better plans, right? But what do you make a plane with, right? <laughs> it's the natural resources. What I thought was really interesting, in the bill, there was a water section to improve drinking water, which I thought was a really smart thing because that is our biggest issue. And when you think about the West Coast of the United States and the Colorado River and the drying up of it, I'm just going to be careful here. I'm not promoting this. But if you look at the amount of oil that is off the Monterey Peninsula and out in California, you said, okay, we're going to take some of that and we're going to do it selectively and creatively and then we install the desalination plant with the profits you solve the water problem for california like for everybody and that's if that water dries up i mean that is a significant problem i mean that is anarchy because nothing will work you know you take the power grids down you got a problem so what i'm seeing is you know Can you have enough capacity to say, I'm going to take a portion of my portfolio, I'm going to expose it to natural resources, I'm going to expose it to oil and gas? You remember many, many years ago, probably 2007, 2008, they were trying to put a tax on the oil firms because they were the most valuable. There was like an Exxon tax that they were trying to do. Exxon had crossed over, was the most valuable company in the world and then oil went down and now it's coming back up but these energy companies they're not just in the oil business they're in the energy business so there's going to be a tremendous amount of acquisitions and mergers and small technology and combining together but it's the technology companies that i think really benefit from this also because you know what makes a car more efficient technology Right? How do you take a resource from a lower level, turn it into something new and fresh that creates more value? That's how commodities become valuable.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? fresh Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com Let's get this dinner party started
1: I noticed that uh, some of the big automakers now are getting involved in the chip business because they can't get the chips and the chips are such an integral part of cars these days yeah, so like everybody's becoming
2: singular manufacturers. It used to be back in the day, Ford assembly line would make every part. And they said, well, that's not efficient. Let's go out and we'll get other suppliers. And that was very beneficial for smaller firms and niche and nuance firms. And now it's coming back in place because they just can't get it. But eventually, I think that actually changes. You'll see companies spin off this type of thing if they can make it successfully because they don't want to own that. They want to own where they are. But that's really what's interesting also is companies are not just about the technology, you know, Apple's talking about doing a car now, right? So we're going to have a car and an iPhone and a car with a camera in it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) what aspect of our life are they not involved in? And when you think about the structure of the ownership of it, you know, the big mutual funds and the big investment companies have large stakes in all these firms we, the investors, are fueling that money. And, you know, whether we're across every border, the international stocks from our perspective in, you know, Europe and the emerging markets, we all own everything now. You know, for $500, we can buy into these asset classes in an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund and have that exposure. And I think it's very different for the investors today. And, And I think you have to think about What am I doing if I'm retired? What strategies am I going to put in place that can help me increase my income? Now, in my mind, there's two ways to increase income, or three ways. First thing is to actually make more interest income, which requires more risk. Okay. The second way is to reduce expenses. All right. The third way is to reduce taxes, which is an expense. You can kind of say that they're the same thing. But if I can reduce my taxable income and get the same amount of income that I'm receiving today, that's an inflation hedge. This is a point where you have to look at is, and I do this all the time, which is, okay, you walk in the front door, your financial strategy is kind of like a chessboard. It's in motion. The game is in play. Let's look at that. Let's understand what the components are. Let's understand- how it's being taxed, you know, distribution rates. And then how do you move the chess pieces around to reduce that pressure on the plan? And pressure comes from high withdrawal rates, market volatility. Inflation is a pressure, right? High taxes are a pressure. Kids are a pressure, (laughs) right? And it's how do I release the pressure on the wealth and it's not just buying a product it's looking at the big picture if i can reduce my taxes and reduce some of my expenses and put my money in better you know more diversified 18 19 asset classes as opposed to you know
1: technology stocks with engineering companies they've always been seen as a bit of an infrastructure play another asset class and a way of generating income is that something that you're looking at at the moment especially with this infrastructure bill yeah cuz i
2: really think they're going to benefit greatly from this so that their profitability should go up there should be job expansion in there even the educational you know places that specialize in that there's going to be if people are smart they're going to head in that direction because that's really the redoing of the world i think is really where the benefit comes from and it requires architects and engineers and really smart people, and to build stuff of quality that lasts for a long time and looks good for a long time.
1: Because a lot of stuff doesn't look good. The thing is, too, is that uh, with inflation comes the possibility of higher interest rates. Where does the point come where the Fed is actually forced to increase interest rates? It's close, but I don't think they can do
2: it. I mean, I would love to see my bank account back up at 5% right? When I started in the industry 32, 31 and a half years ago, you had savings accounts and CDs at eight and a half or 9%, and they were down from the highs, right? I remember early 2000, I think you could buy municipal bonds at par at 5%. Like, oh my God. But if you think about it now, can you raise the interest rates in the economy and not completely You know, stall it in its tracks. If I'm a big corporate lender and I'm lending at, you know, some sort of interest rate LIBOR plus a half a point, and you raise the interest rates, and my interest rates go from one and a half percent to three percent, what did it do to my profitability of the company? Overnight, you know, that's down, down dramatically. You think about some of the things that are going on right now, we're paying a lot more for products because fuel costs are higher, right? You add an interest rate cost to that structure. Like if I'm leasing a fleet of vehicles and we're, we're moving goods and materials from Florida to New Jersey, and you know, the cost to carry those vehicles goes up dramatically. I can remember back in the early 90s, you know, the automobile dealers had the floor plan loans and they were 1% a month. You Number know, 12% that it cost the dealers. Now it's probably two or three percent. So the raising of the interest rates has a ripple effect through the economy that I don't know how we raise the interest rates. But even you think about our real estate market. Real estate market is up dramatically in the United States in pretty much every single sector, in every single location, every single community, rents, everything is up. And Let's say I bought a house today and the interest rates on that house were I locked in at two and a half percent for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And now I'm going to go sell the house and go buy a larger house. and Interest rates are four in the future. Less people can afford that house now. So what happens is when less people can afford the house, you're going to see prices drop. And because the ratios aren't going to work and you know it's going to be more difficult to do it. I mean, you think about it, you can buy so much more house today with the lower interest rates. And we have unique tax benefits that are derived with a house. Like in the United States, if it's your primary residence, you can sell your house every two years for an exclude a capital gain of 250,000. If you're married, that's a half a million dollars. So, like, if I bought a house two years ago and I made a lot of money, on, I can sell it tax-free. You're going to start to see a lot of that happening. And as that happens, there'll be more supply. You know, I'm probably wrong
1: on that. Psychologically, this has got to have an effect on people's thinking. There's been, over the last few days, some surveys have come out. And I can't remember the exact figure, but a large number of people in the U.S. believe that they're going to be less well-off in a year's time. They're not looking at the future with any optimism?
2: There's this sense of, like, I'm going to get hit from somewhere. I'm not sure where. I'm not sure how. Something's coming. It's, <laughs> something's looming over me. It's going to take me out. I'm going to lose my job. You know, something's going to happen. You know, we can't get supply. I mean, literally, I rented a car on one of the big sites. I didn't rent it because it was crazy. We're going a family vacation. We're going to sneak away for a few days. Well, all the rental companies sold their cars and now they're getting them back on, but there's a lack of supply. So the rental cars are the highest they've ever been. Like there's a point where you and I get priced out of what we normally buy. And that's what people are afraid of. Like going out to dinner has become a very expensive proposition. I was talking to one of the local restaurateurs the other day. He's got a couple of restaurants and one's extremely high end and he has a big steak. That's a $64 steak that's on the menu. His cost now is $60 for this $64 steak. It used to be, you know, he didn't really tell me what it was, probably in the 20s or $15. And now it's $60. He's keeping it on the menu because it's like a leader at the point. But he's like, at what point can I not sell the steak? He took steak off his two other restaurants. Like, it's not there. He's not selling because he just can't make any money with it. And he'll sell you pasta and make a lot more money. And that's what the fear is. People feel like they're going to get rolled over by inflation. There's a sense that the real estate market is going to collapse just because it's gone up so much. Like you can't get a car. You can't get to work. I mean, it's just, there's a point where there's that fear of we're not going to have the same income or my pension's going to have a problem or something. We're going to get taxed. And that's the fear right now is that people are starting to see that the infrastructure bill is supposed to be paid for through the build back better bill, right? And that started off as $3.2 trillion. And it's now down to two something. It'll probably be one something. And there's a lot of odds that are saying nothing's going to get done because there's too many layers in there and people are starting to understand that who's going to pay for it. And even if it's targeted at people that make over 400000 there will be less people making 400000 because there will be layoffs the corporations will not be able to sustain it right now you can get a job it's the best job market we have seen and people aren't getting them i literally talk to clients every single day and they can't get enough people to work in big corporations and small corporations like just send us some people that are qualified and we will hire you if you can string a sentence together send them over (laughs) Can you send me an email that I can read? Oh my God, I can read the email. You have a job. <laughs> you <got> a job. <laughs> but seriously, there's that very popular person a few years ago in newsletters was talking about a melt up, right? It seems like he might have been right. Like we are in the middle of a massive melt up where everything becomes more expensive. And it's at what point does it fall? And where are we standing? You know, my grandfather used to tell me, you know, ready money, available money is aladdin's lamp i was like what are you talking about you know he's like if you have money and there's opportunities that exist you can take advantage of it if you don't have ready money available money liquid money you're not going to take advantage of it and as so many people are leveraged like a lot of these house purchases are cash offers they came from you know selling of assets or financed off of you know asset-based loans interest rates go up stock market falls boom big problems so standard deviation we're going way out there if we can get this we can get this infrastructure bill in play get people back to work i mean the unemployment numbers i'm dumbfounded by them they don't make any sense to me i know so many people that are out of work still you know the companies just can't find the right employees people don't want to commute people are changing the way they think but the bottom line is there's tremendous opportunity if we get these people back into the workforce there's a way that you get
1: out of this and everything's fine. I don't know. I'm a little confused. Yeah, it is confusing. It's become a, a macro conversation that we're having, isn't it? This is what macro people talk about in the finance industry, these huge tidal forces that are, you know, pushing us little fish around in the undertow. And we've got no control over it. Yeah. You know, we tend to think about micro,
2: right? Like the micro is, hey, I go and my craft singles, and not to use a brand, but they're more expensive, right? And there's less in the pack that's micro. The macro is the big picture that caused it. Like what really caused it? Well, the transportation and, you know, all these different things and the lack of employees. And there's not as much stuff to sell. Like you can't get certain products because there's not enough people to make them. It's always macro. And it's the macro economic environment that if we apply the right forces to and the right thinking, we come out of this beautifully. In my personal opinion, I think we're way oversteering the ship. Too much investment by the forces like money that's not going into efficient use, you know the pPP loans and you know all the q e that we've been doing there was a lot of waste there was a lot of waste there was a lot of money that was you know not used appropriately, and you know a lot of this stuff is supposed to get paid you know part of this is an i r s enforcement to go after money that's not getting taxed well that's something that should be happening every single year i mean. We all pay our fair share of taxes, and some of us don't. And it's those things that if you collected the tax revenue that was supposed to be collected, yes, that would be good. There's good components in this, in everything. But then there's a lot of waste also. And that's the thing that if you can figure out a way to prevent the waste and to really look at the macro, like, is this dollar spent going to create 8 $9 worth of opportunity? Or is it going to just stifle us? Now you get into opinions and biases and, you know, defending your position and who knows? That's right.
1: Yeah. So you've got an offer of an obligation-free wealth curve conversation call. <laughs> and people can hear you talking all about this. Tell us about that offer.
2: So one of the things that we want to do is our job, you know, we're financial advisors. We're in the business of helping people create long-term Financial plans and constantly refining and refreshing them, right? The Wealth Curve Conversation is a free, no obligation call with one of the advisors here. And it's going to go through you and your family. It's going to go through your income, your job. If you own your own firm, we're going to talk about the partners and the structures, find out about taxes. Where are you saving money? What's your debt structure like? Where are the assets? What's the future obligations? Hey, I got four kids. I got to put them through school. You know, those things are just through the roof, right? And then how well is your wealth defended? You know, what's the defense like? Do you have the proper amount of umbrella and life insurance and disability insurance? And those are things that people forget about every single day. They forget about, you know, it's not just about rate of return. It's about the macro picture in your plans. You can go on the website, smallwoodwealth.com sign up for that it'll schedule it right there you can call us at 732-542-1565 talk to the person that answers the phone she'll get you scheduled but the goal of the call is to really see are we the right team for you and are you the right team for us it's kind of like you sift us we sift you and we make sure that we're good and then we figure out whether or not we can work Together, our job, our goal is to work with a lot of people and a lot of families and build a relationship.
1: So tell us the name of the podcast as well and how people can listen in. So
2: it's Wealth Curve Talk with John Smallwood and my partner Edward Bao just created one called Jumping the Wealth Curve. He's a motorcycle guy. So it's a cool little visual and he's doing his. And the idea is that we're different, but yet we're we're talking the same thing, but we appeal to different people. And the way we Approach some of the thinking is different as well, but the outcome is the same. All right. So the podcast is on, you can actually subscribe to it on whatever medium that you're downloading podcasts. It's available on the website. Also, you can see it. There's a webinar that goes on every two to three weeks where we try to get some really interesting hosts from one of the big institutions to help us be a little smarter, ask us good questions. And, you know, my thing always is collectively, can we gain enough information that's going to change our perspective on something or enlighten us or improve it or make us better and just keep getting better? John Smallwood, thank you very much for joining me today. And it's been great having you back on. This was awesome. I always enjoy this and
1: I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Phil. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road.